Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. We are now into chapter 35, The Rosicrucians in the Freemasons. This is a really long chapter, so I'm going to split this into two episodes. The Rosicrucians in the Freemasons. Of all the theories advanced in relation to the origin of Freemasonry from some one of the secret sects or societies, either of antiquity or of the Middle Ages, there is none more interesting than that which seeks to connect it with the Hermetic philosophy. This happens to be the case because there is none which presents more attractively probable claims for our favorable attention. No doubt, in some of what are called the high degrees, there is a very evident use of a hermetic element. This cannot be denied. The fact will be most apparent to anyone who examines their rituals. Some, by their very titles, where the hermetic language and a reference to hermetic principles are adopted, plainly admit the connection and the influence. There is, therefore, no necessity to investigate the question whether or not some of those high or philosophic degrees which were invented about the middle of the 18th century are or were not of a hermetic character. The time of their invention, when craft Freemasonry was already in a fixed condition, takes them entirely out of the problem relating to the origin of the Masonic institution. No matter when Freemasonry was founded, the high degrees were an afterthought and might very well be affected by the principles of any philosophy in use at that period of their invention. It is a question of some interest to the Masonic student whether at the time of the so-called revival of Freemasonry in the early part of the 18th century, certain hermetic degrees did not exist which sought to connect themselves with the system of Masonry. The question is of still greater interest whether this attempt was successful so far, at least, as to impress upon the features of that early Freemasonry a portion of the features of the Hermetic philosophy, some of the marks of which may still remain in our modern system. The Hermetic philosophy was that invented and taught by the Rosicrucians, and before we can attempt to resolve these important and interesting questions, it will be necessary to take a brief glance at the history and the character of Rosicrucianism. On the 17th of August, 1586, Johann Valentin Andrea was born at Herrenberg, a small market town of what was afterward the Kingdom of Württemberg. After a studious youth, during which he became possessed of a more than moderate share of learning, he left in 1610 on a pilgrimage through Germany, Austria, Italy, and France, supplied with but little money, but with a lively desire for the gain of knowledge. Returning home in 1614, he adopted the church as a profession and was appointed a deacon in the town of Weihinden and reached in 1634 the positions of Protestant prelate of the Abbey of Bebenhausen and religious advisor of the Duchy of Brunswick. He died on the 27th of June, 1654, at the ripe age of 68 years. To the moral character of Andrea, his biographers have given great praise. A lover of mankind from his earliest life, he carried, or sought to carry, his plans of goodwill into action. Wherever, says Thomas Vaughan, the church, the school, the institute of charity have fallen into ruin or distress, 
There the tireless Andrea sought to restore them. He was, says another writer, the guardian genius and the comforter of the suffering. He was a practical helper as well as a theoretical advisor. In the times of dearth and famine, many thousand poor were fed and clothed by his exertions, and the town of Kahl, of which in 1720 he was appointed the superintendent, long enjoyed the benefit of his many charitable institutions which owed their origin to his efforts. A man having such benevolent feelings and actuated by such a spirit of philanthropy would view with deep regret the faults of the times in which he lived and would search for some plan by which the condition of his fellow men might be amended and the dry, weak theology of the church be converted into some more living, active, humanizing system. To gain this purpose, he could see no better method than the founding of a practical brotherhood, one of a kind that did not at that time exist, but the formation of which here solved to suggest to such noble minds as might be awakened to favor the enterprise. With this view, Andrea used the help of fiction. Hence there appeared in 1615 a work which he entitled The Report of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, or in its original Latin, Fama Fraternitas Rosae Crucis. An edition had been published the year before with the title of Universal Reformation of the Whole Wide World, with a report of the Worshipful Order of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood, addressed to all the learned men and nobility of Europe. There was another work, published in 1616, with the title of Chemise Hochzeit, or Chemical Marriage, by Christian Rosenkreutz. All of these books were published without any author's name, but they were believed to be due to the pen of Andrea. They were all intended for one purpose, that of showing by the character of their reception who were the true lovers of wisdom and brotherly love, and of inducing them to come forward to the perfection of the enterprise by changing this fiction of a society into a real and active organization. The romantic story of Christian Rosenkreutz, the supposed founder of the order, is thus told by Andrea. We are indebted for the most part to the language of George Sloan, who, although his views on the subject contain many errors, has yet given us a very good account in brief of the myth of Andrea. According to Andrea's tale, a certain Christian Rosenkreutz, though of good birth, found himself compelled from poverty to enter a house of monks at a very early period of life. He was only sixteen years old when one of the monks planned to go as a pilgrim to the Holy Sepulchre, and Rosenkreutz, as a special favor, was permitted to go with him. At Cyprus the monk was taken ill, but Rosenkreutz goes on to Damascus with the intention of going to Jerusalem. While resting in the former city from the toil of his journey, he hears of the wonders performed by the wise men of Damascus. His curiosity being excited, he places himself under their direction. Three years having been spent in getting an understanding of their most hidden mysteries, he sets sail from the Gulf of Arabia for Egypt. There he studies the nature of plants and animals, and then he goes, in obedience to the instructions of his Arabian masters, to Fez in Morocco. At this city it was the custom of the Arabian and African philosophers to meet annually for the purpose of giving to each other the results of their experience and inquiries. Here he passed two years in study. He then crossed over to Spain, but not meeting there with a favorable reception, he returned to his native country. Germany was then filled with mystics of all kinds. The ideas of Rosenkreutz for a reformation in morals and science met with so little sympathy from the public that he resolves to establish a society of his own. With this view, he selects three of his favorite companions from his old convent. To them, under a solemn vow of secrecy, he gives the knowledge he had gained during his travels. 
He puts upon them the duty of placing it in writing and of forming a magical set of words for the benefits of future students. In addition to this task, they also planned and actually tried to treat freely all the sick who should ask their help. But in a short time, the flock of patients became so great as seriously to interfere with their other duties. A building which Rosencruz had been erecting, called the Temple of the Holy Ghost, was now completed. He decided to increase the number of the Brotherhood, and accordingly he initiated four new members. When all is completed, and the eight brethren are instructed in the mysteries of the order, they separate, according to agreement, two only staying with Father Christian, the other six, after traveling for a year, are to return and give up to the brethren the results of their experience. The two who had stayed at home are then to be relieved by two of the travelers, so that the founder may never be alone, and the six again divide and travel for a year. The laws of the order, as they had been laid down by Rosencruz, were as follows. 1. That they should devote themselves to nothing else than that of the free practice of physic. 2. That they were not to wear any special clothing, but were to follow in this respect the customs of the country where they might happen to be. 3. That each one was to present himself on a certain day in the year at the temple of the Holy Ghost, or send an excuse for his absence. 4. That each one was to look out for a brother to succeed him in the event of his death. 5. That the letters R.C. were to be their seal, watchword, and title. And 6. That the brotherhood was to be kept a secret for 100 years. When 100 years old, Christian Rosencruz died. The place of his burial was unknown to anyone but the two brothers who were with him at the time of his death. They carried the secret with them to their own graves. However, the society continued to exist and unknown to the world, always consisting of eight members only, until another 120 years had gone by, when according to a tradition of the order, the grave of Father Rosencruz was to be discovered, and the brotherhood to be no longer a mystery to the world. About this time, the brethren began to make some alterations in their building. They thought of removing to another and more fitting situation the memorial tablet on which were inscribed the names of their associates. The plate, which was of brass, was affixed to the wall by means of a nail in its center. So firmly was it fastened that in tearing it away, a portion of the plaster of the wall broke off and showed what had been a hidden door. Upon this door being still further freed from the plastering, there appeared above it in large letters the following words, Post Kentum Vigniti Annos Patebo. After 120 years, I will be opened. Although the brethren were greatly delighted at the find, they so far controlled their curiosity as to not open the door until the next morning, when they found themselves in a vault of seven sides, each side five feet wide and eight feet high. This room was lighted by an artificial sun in the center of the arched roof, while in the middle of the floor, instead of a tomb, stood a round altar covered with a small brass plate, on which was this inscription, A.C.R.C. Hoc University Compendium Vivus Mihi Sepulchrum Feci. That is, while living, I made this compact copy of the universe my grave. About the outer edge was Jesus Mihi Omnia, that is, Jesus is everything to me. In the center were four figures, each enclosed in a circle, with these words inscribed around them. One, Nequaquam Vacuus. Two, Legus Hugum. Three, Libertas Evangelii. Four, Dei Gloria Intacta. That is, one, by no means void. Two, the yoke of the law. 
3. The Liberty of the Gospel 4. The Unsullied Glory of God On seeing all this, the brethren knelt down and returned thanks to God for having made them so much wiser than the rest of the world. They then divided the vault into three parts, the roof, the wall, and the pavement. The first and the last were divided into seven triangles corresponding to the seven sides of the wall, each of which formed the base of a triangle. While the eight pieces met in the center of the roof and of the pavement. Each side was divided into ten squares, containing figures and sentences to be explained to the new initiates. In each side, there was also a door opening upon a closet, wherein were stored up many rare articles, such as the secret books of the order, the word book of Paracelsus, and other things of similar nature. In one of the closets, they discovered the life of their founder. In others, they found curious mirrors, burning lamps, and a variety of objects intended to aid in rebuilding the order, which, after the passing of many centuries, was to fall into decay. Pushing aside the altar, they came upon a strong brass plate. This being removed, they beheld the corpse of Rosencruz as freshly preserved as on the day when it had been placed there, and under his arm a volume of vellum with letters of gold, containing, among other things, the names of the eight brethren who had founded the order. Such is an outline of the story of Christian Rosencruz and his Rosicrucian order, as it is told in the Fama Fraternardis. It is very evident that Andrea composed this romance, for it is nothing else, not to record the existence of any actual society, but only that it might serve as a suggestion to the learned and the kind-hearted to engage in the establishment of some such benevolent association. He hoped, says Vaughn, that the few nobler minds whom he desired to organize would see through this veil of fiction in which he had invested his proposal, that he might communicate personally with some such, if they should appear, or that his book might lead them to form among themselves a practical philanthropy answering to the serious purpose he had used in his fiction. His design was misunderstood then, as it has been since. Everywhere his fable was accepted as a fact. Search was made by the believers in the story for the discovery of the Temple of the Holy Ghost. Printed letters appeared continually addressed to the unknown brotherhood seeking admission into the fraternity, a fraternity that existed only in the pages of the Fama. The silence in reply to so many applications awoke the suspicions of some, while the mystery strengthened the beliefs of others. The brotherhood, whose actual house lay beneath the doctor's hat of Valentine Andrea, was earnestly attacked and as vigorously defended in the many books and pamphlets which during that period poured from the German press. Learned men among the Germans did not give a favoring ear to the philanthropic suggestions of Andrea, but the mystical notions contained in his story were seized eagerly by the quacks, who added to them the dreams of the alchemist and the visions of the astrologers, so that the Rosicrucianism that then followed became a very different thing from that which had been planned by its author. However, it does not appear that the Rosicrucians, as an organized society, made any stand in Germany. Descartes says that after a strict search, he could not find a single lodge in that country. But it extended, as we presently see, into England, and there became known as a mystical association. Strange opinions, either willful or mistaken, have existed in respect to the relations of Andrea to Rosicrucianism. We have no more right or reason to ascribe the starting of such a sect to the German theologian than we have to credit the finding of the Republic of Utopia to Sir Thomas More, or of the island of Bensalem to Lord Bacon. In each of these instances, a fiction was invented on which the author might build his philosophical or political thoughts. 
There was no idea that readers would take that for fact, which was merely meant for fiction. Yet Rigolini Deschio, in his masonry considered as the result of the Egyptian, Jewish, and Christian religions, refuses to express an opinion on the allegorical question, as if there might be a doubt on the subject, respects the legend as it was given in the Fama, and asserts that on the return of Rosencruz to Germany, quote, he instituted secret societies with an initiation that resembled that of early Christians, end quote. He dates back the chemical wedding of Andrea a century and a half, credits the authorship of that work to Christian Rosengrutz, as if he were a real person, and thinks that he founded in 1459 the Rite of the Theosophists, the earliest branch of the Rose Croix, or the Rosicrucians, for the French make no distinction in the two words, though in history they are different. History written in this way is worse than fable. It is an ignis fatuus, a will of the wisp, which can only lead astray. But this is the method by which Masonic history has too often been treated. Nikolai, although the means by which he connects Freemasonry with Rosicrucianism are wholly unsound, is yet, in his treatment of the latter, more honest or less ignorant. He adopts the correct view when he says that the Fama Fraternatus only announced a general reformation and exhorted all wise men to unite in a proposed society for the purpose of removing error and restoring wisdom. He praises it as a charming vision, full of poesy and imagination, but very fanciful, as was indeed common in the writings of that age. He notes the fact that while the alchemists have sought in that work for the secrets of their mysteries, it really makes fun in a solemn style of satire on their claims. The Fama Fraternatus undoubtedly appealed to the curiosity of the mystics who abounded in Germany at the time of its appearance, of whom not the least important were the alchemists. These, having sought vainly for the invisible society of the Rosicrucians, as it has been described in the Romance of Andrea, resolved to form such a society for themselves. But to the sorrow of the author of the Fama, they neglected or postponed the moral reformation which he sought, and put in its place dreamy schemes of the alchemists, a body of thinkers who put their origin as students of nature and seekers of the Philosopher's Stone and the elixir of immortality to a very remote period. We may trace the origin of the Rosicrucians not to Valentin Andrea, nor to Christian Rosengrutz, who is perhaps only the invention of his brain, but to the influence exerted by him upon certain mystics and alchemists. These, whether they accepted the legend of Rosengrutz as a fiction or as a verity, at least made free use of it in the building up of their society. Therefore, we are not inclined to doubt the statement of L.C. Orvius, as cited by Nikolai, that in 1622 there was a society of alchemists at The Hague who called themselves Rosicrucians and claimed Rosencruz as their founder. Michael Meyer, the physician of the Emperor Rudolf II, devoted himself in the early part of the 17th century to the pursuits of alchemy and, having adopted the mystical views of the Rosicrucian, is said to have introduced that society into England. Meyer was the author of many works in Latin in defense and in explanation of the Rosicrucian system. Among them was an epistle addressed to all lovers of true chemistry throughout Germany and especially to that order which has hitherto lain concealed, but is now probably made known by the report of the fraternity, or Fama Fraternatus, and their admirable confession. In this work he uses the following language, quote, What is contained in the Fama and Confessio is true. It is a very childish objection that the Brotherhood have promised so much and performed so little. The masters of the order hold out the rose as a remote reward, but they impose the cross on all who are entering. 
Like the Pythagoreans and the Egyptians, the Rosicrucians extract vows of silence and secrecy. Ignorant men have treated the whole as a fiction, but this has arisen from the probation of five years to which they subject even well-qualified novices before they are admitted to the higher mysteries, and within that period they are taught how to govern their own tongues. End quote. Although Meyer died in 1622, it appears that he lived long enough to take part in the organization of the Rosicrucian sect, which had been formed out of the suggestions of Andrea. His views on this subject were, however, peculiar and different from those of most of the new disciples. He denied that the order took either its origin or its name from the person called Rosencruz. He says that the founder of the society, having given his disciples the letters R.C. as a sign of their fraternity, they improperly made out of them the words rose and cross, but these radical opinions were not accepted by the Rosicrucians in general, who still adhered to Andrea's legend as the source and the explanation of their order. At one time, Meyer went to England, where he became intimately acquainted with Dr. Robert Flood, the most famous as well as the earliest of the English Rosicrucians. Robert Flood was a physician of London who was born in 1574 and died in 1637. He was a keen student of alchemy, theosophy, and every other branch of mysticism. He wrote in defense of Rosicrucianism, of which sect he was an active member. Among his earliest works is one published in 1616 under the title A Compendious Apology Clearing the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross from the Stains of Suspicion and Infamy Cast Upon Them. There has been some dispute as to whether Meyer brought the system of Rosicrucian to Flood or whether Flood had already received it from Germany before the visit of Meyer. The only authority from the former student is Thomas de Quincey, a most unreliable one, and the date of Flood's apology is against it. Flood's explanation of the name of the sect differs from that of both Andrea and Meyer. It is, he says, to be taken with a figurative sense and refers to the cross rose red with the blood of Christ. He comes closely to the idea held by members of the modern Rose Corps degree. No matter who was the missionary that brought it, it is very certain that Rosicrucianism was carried from Germany, its birthplace, into England at a very early period of the 17th century. And it is equally certain that after its introduction, it flourished with more vigor than in its native soil. That there were in that century, and even in the beginning of the next one, mystical initiations wholly unconnected with Freemasonry, but openly professing a hermetic or Rosicrucian character and origin, may very readily be supposed from existing documents. It is a misfortune that such authors as Buell, Nicolai, Rigolini, and others, to say nothing of such non-Masonic writers as Sloan and De Kinsey, who were necessarily mere outsiders in all Masonic studies, should have mixed up the two institutions, and because both were mystical and one appeared to follow, although it really did not, the other in point of time, should have set forth the theory, wholly unsound, that Freemasonry owes its origin to Rosicrucianism. The writings of Lilly and Ashmole, both learned men for the age in which they lived, prove the existence of a mystical philosophy in England in the 17th century, in which each of them took an active part. The astrologers, who were deeply impressed with the Hermetic philosophy, held their social meetings for mutual instruction and their annual feast. Ashmole gives hints of his initiation into what we may suppose to have been alchemical or Rosicrucian wisdom. We have a clear documentary testimony of the existence of the Hermetic degree or system at the beginning of the 18th century, and about the time of what is called the revival of Masonry in England by the establishment of the Grand Lodge of London, and which, from other undoubted testimony, we know was not Masonic.
This evidence is found in a rare work, some portions of whose contents in reference to the subject are well worthy of a careful review. In the year 1722, there was published in London a work in small octavo bearing the following title, Long Livers, a curious history of such persons of both sexes who have lived several ages and grown young again, with the rare secret of rejuvenescency of Arnaldus de Villanova, and a great many approved and invaluable rules to prolong life. Also, how to prepare the universal medicine, most humbly dedicated to the Grand Master, Masters, Wardens, and Brethren of the most ancient and honorable fraternity of the Freemasons of Great Britain and Ireland, by Eugenius Philalethes, FRS, author of the Treaties of the Plague, Viri Fratis Aditi Mei, Act 15.13, Diligete Fraternatum Timete Deum Honorate, Regum, 1 Peter 2.17, London, printed for J. Holland at the Bible and the Ball in St. Paul's Churchyard, and L. Stoko at Charing Cross, 17.22, pages 64 to 199. Eugenius Philalethes was the pen name of Thomas Vaughan, a celebrated Rosicrucian of the 17th century, who published in 1652 a translation of the Fama Fraternatus into English. But as he was born in 1612, it is not supposed to be that he wrote the present work. However, it is not very important to identify this second Philalethes, though there is not lacking proof that it was Robert Samber. Sufficient for our purpose it is to know that it is a hermetic treatise written by a Rosicrucian, of which the title alone, the references to the renewal of youth, one of the Rosicrucian secrets, to the recipe of the great Rosicrucian Villanova, or Arnold de Villeneuve, and to the universal medicine, the Rosicrucian Elixir Vitae, would be good proof. The only matter of interest in connection with the present subject is that this hermetic work, written or at least printed in 1722, one year before the publication of the first edition of Anderson's Constitutions, refers plainly to the existence of a higher initiation than that of the craft degrees, which the author seeks to put into the Masonic system. And with that, we'll end here and pick up the rest of it next week for the second half of Chapter 35, The Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.